Welcome to episode 82 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're looking at the season 4 premiere, Heronvolk, first aired October 4th, 1996. It had an IMDb rating of 8.6 out of 10. When I first collated all these ratings at the start of this podcast series, it has since risen to 8.6. Like most episodes, it rose fairly dramatically during the period where Fox was airing an episode of The X-Files every single night leading up to the 10th season for 200 days. The locations in Heronvolk are the same as those from Talitha Kumi, so we're looking at Rhode Island, Quantic and so forth, with the addition of Alberta, the Canadian province where I happen to live. The episode was directed by R.W. Bob Goodwin and written by Chris Carter. Now, just to discuss season four in general a little bit before we get into this, at this point the show was an undeniable hit. It was getting the critical acclaim, it was getting the ratings. It was during this season that they decided that the Fight the Future theatrical release was going to be happening, and it was written during this season and filmed between seasons four and five. More and more people were aware of the show as pop culture references to the series were getting more and more common in multiple outlets. We'll go into that in more detail in October, January, and June. And this also brought Glenn Morgan and James Wong back to the writing team for this season as the Space Above and Beyond series that they'd left for had unfortunately been cancelled. It was actually a fairly decent series. Now, this episode eventually comes back to the cliffhanger ending from Talitha Kumi, but it starts in the pre-credits teaser with a scene in Alberta, where a TELUS employee is working on some communication lines. TELUS is the actual telecommunications monopoly here in the provinces of Alberta and BC. So he's attacked and killed by bees while some identically young boys stand there and watch. It's after the opening credits that we cut back to the cliffhanger, and we see how they manage to escape from the alien bounty hunter, attempt to kill him, fail to do so. When they stabbed him in the neck, the target was a little bit off, which explains why he didn't melt when others did. He was just injured. Mulder and Jeremiah Smith escape to Alberta. Mulder's still trying to get Jeremiah Smith to come heal his mother, but the bounty hunter captures Scully and sort of forces her to draw the two of them out, although she does warn them what's going on. So Mulder and Jeremiah end up at the farm with the clone boys that we had originally met in the teaser, as well as a number of comparable clone girls who look just like Samantha Mulder. Now, they're all nonverbal. It turns out that these clones are like bees, just worker drones who are tending the farms. So they can't really speak. They don't have parents because they don't need them. They just go out and act on instinct. So while Mulder is trying to get Jeremiah Smith back to save his mother, Scully continues her investigations into the database that Jeremiah Smith and the other Jeremiah Smiths had been collecting and discovers that it's actually a database of genetic tagging of everyone who has ever had a smallpox vaccination. Ultimately, this Jeremiah Smith escapes, but the cigarette-smoking man manages to get the alien bounty hunter to heal Tina Mulder. The episode itself is generally very good, although I do feel the pre-credit scene feels a little bit out of place, not picking up on the previous cliffhanger. Structurally, I think it would have been better off early in the season finale in season three, but I don't know if they had this specific idea at that time. But establishing the bees is a big part of the mythos, and that starts here. Now, getting into our newest feature, the science introduced in this episode that we hadn't previously seen was the science of actually having bees genetically engineered as a means of delivering a virus to the general population. Well, is that possible? If you're using honeybees, then the toxin is apitoxin. 
you know, it's honeybee venom. When they sting you, they do inject you with this bitter colorless liquid. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it causes inflammation and acts as an anticoagulant. So the idea is to inflame the area, so draw blood to the area, but prevent that blood from clotting. Aside from those with allergies or those who've been exposed to very high quantities, this is more of an irritant than an actual threat to the human population. So it's got a number of ingredients. There's melatonin, apamin, adolapin, phospholipase A2, hyaluronidase, histamine, which helps drive allergic responses, which is part of the reason they're so strong, dopamine, noradrenaline, protease inhibitors, and tertiapin. I apologize for any of those that I just mispronounced. So to get the bees to deliver this, what we'd have to do is basically produce genetically modified organisms. So the virus itself would just have to be a virus that affects the human species but doesn't affect bees. That is not terribly unusual. There's a number of viruses that only affect certain species and not others. That part, even the fact that this is a genetically engineered virus targeting humans, it would be safe to say that they might even have a virus that only impacts humans at this point. So that's quite plausible. What we need to find is a way to get that virus into the bee venom in the first place. And that's where genetically modified organisms come in. Now, genetically modified organisms or GMOs have been a lot of talk in terms of the foods that we eat. And some people have raised questions about the safety and the standards of testing. Well, there have been studies, and a lot more studies than some of these people are willing to admit. Some of them include massive studies across Europe where some European countries have banned GMOs, others have not, and they're seeing no impact on the human species as a result of these. If you've got a genome string from cows and you inject it into a grain, you can use that grain to grow wheat, turn that wheat into bread. The bread already tastes like a roast beef sandwich because you've got that cow DNA in there. As far as the human digestive system is concerned, what the digestive system does is break everything down into its component proteins, minerals, and nutrients. So our digestive system cannot distinguish between your roast beef bread produced by GMOs and a traditional roast beef sandwich. We've been doing genetic modifications for years. We've been doing it with crossbreeding animals. A mule is effectively a genetically modified organism. We used old-fashioned techniques to combine horse and donkey DNA. We've been cloning plants by taking cuttings and growing new plants based on a sample of the old plant with identical DNA. The ability to manipulate the DNA directly in the nucleus is relatively new and much more efficient. But genetic modification of organisms has been something that mankind has been up to for centuries. The question that we have in terms of safety is whether or not it impacts the environment. So sure, our beef grain or beef wheat is perfectly safe for humans to eat. Does that mean that the pollinating insects in the area are going to find it safe, or is it going to have some impact on that part of the ecology? And that's the part that needs to be studied. But just saying something is bad because it's genetically modified is sweeping and inaccurate. It's an overreaction. I mean, viruses in nature have been constantly genetically modifying organisms. Evolution is based on genetically modifying organisms. It's just a natural process rather than artificial, which does not automatically make it better. If we were to ban all genetically modified organisms on the spot, as some people are advocating, we'd be issuing a death sentence to the vast majority of the diabetic population because the human species cannot produce enough insulin to provide their needs without the use of genetically modified organisms. But in any event, that pretty much wraps up what we have here. In two weeks' time, we'll come back to look at the second episode of the season, which is Home. Now, this is the one with the Peacock family. It is one of the most disturbing episodes of the series, so just giving you a heads up. 
In the meantime, please feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can share links to friends you think may be interested and send feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Finally, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.